Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Dr. Dylan Burns. He's kindly agreed to join us one more time, hopefully not the last, to talk about the vexed question of fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute in late antique Greek and early Christian philosophy. Dylan, thanks for coming on the Schwepp again. Nice one. Thank you so much for having me on the Schwepp. Again, Earl, it's great to be here. It's a pleasure. So we have this book from you that's just come out. Did God Care? Providence, Dualism, and Will in Later Greek and Early Christian Philosophy from Brill. It's a it's a tome and a half, and it's got all manner of really interesting conversations going on between philosophers in the strict sense, people like the, the early Stoics, and then philosophers in the less strict sense, people like Christian thinkers like Origen and Clement, but also people generally known as Gnostics, and kind of everything in between. Also, a lot of uh, late Platonists who are firmly interested in the gods and all things godly, so they are, in a sense, religious philosophers, but they're philosophers. And all trying to figure out what is up to us, basically. (laughs) Um, So before we get into this what is up to us question, I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about why students of Western esotericism, people in Western esotericism would be interested in the question of what is up to us. Yeah. And what is, what is this providence and fate stuff hmm. anyways? Good question. Yeah. Why, why should one care about this material? Well, as followers of your podcast, know a lot of things dealing with the, the stars, with the way the universe is organized, um, how heaven and earth are related, how human beings fit into this picture, causality, how, how the stars and how the elements affect us and, and, and what, what we do <laughs> with what we, what we want to do. This, this comes up in, in all manner of esoteric sources in antiquity, whether you're looking at alchemical material, astrological material, magical material, and of course, uh, philosophical and theurgical material, mm. right? And a lot of the vocabulary writers use, especially educated writers used to, to deal with these questions in antiquity, had to deal with something called providence. The Greek word is pronoia, it means forethought, and uh, this becomes rendered in Latin by Cicero's day as, as providencia, uh, foreseeing, hence, hence providence, namely um, a kind of uh, uh, caring or forethought for things. And I found over the years working on late ancient religious and philosophical materials, language about providence as relating to free will or fate or determinism would come up over and over again in my sources. Even if I was looking at a, a magical text or a Gnostic text, I wasn't going looking for this, these philosophical problems, but I kept having to read about divine providence everywhere. And so uh, I thought this was, particu- this was particularly acute when I was writing my dissertation on the Platonizing Sethian literature, where this language is very pronounced. And I, I wrote a, a theologian I knew to ask, what, what is this provenance stuff and where can I read a book about it to get a kind of bird's eye view, you know, a, a survey of it. And, and he said he didn't know any. So I decided, well, I'll try to write my second book <laughs> on this topic and figure out what provenance is all about. And that's how I got into this in the first place. So why, why should students of Western esotericism care? Well, because ancient sources about esotericism talk about provenance all the time yeah and so while this book is not really about esotericism it talks about something that comes up in ancient esoteric materials constantly the same thing can be, be said for the middle ages and into the early modern period as well um yeah certainly like when i was reading your book a lot of the the questions of trying to square ideas about fate and free will with god's omnipotence and foreknowledge that you discuss in the early Christian authors, I just think, oh my God, this goes 10 times more for Islam in medi- medieval Islamic philosophy and theolo- theology, as we shall see in the Shweb. Like, because these guys have, you know, in the Bible, you have one passage where uh, Pharaoh is sort of intentionally made to 
do bad stuff by God. And that was a big, you know, sticking point for interpreters. In in the Quran, God's just doing that all the time. He's raising up those he wants to raise up. He's smashing down those he wants to smash down. But you still have free will. So <laughs> we'll get to that in due course. I'm actually jumping ahead of the, the game here by even mentioning free will, right? Because free will is something that's invented rather late in the game, as we shall see. Before we get into that, though, there's a couple kind of like hard philosophical points that I would love to talk with you about because they're going to come up. I think we should define what we mean. Before we have any real discussion of what we might call free will in the Greek world, we do have this discussion of cognate ideas in Aristotle, in Stoicism, and so on. We have the idea of what is up to us as opposed to what is not up to us. I wonder if you could just lay out kind of the background in Greek philosophy of discussing these ideas from wherever, I guess, really Plato onward is, is where we can have that discussion. Yeah, sure. So th- this, this is interesting. There's free, you're, as, you, as you state, free will is not a given in ancient philosophy. It, it's something that develops uh, slowly in the Roman period. Um, and scholars who, who write histories of the, the early development of free will often turn to Christianity and specifically the Christian engagement with Gnosticism, again, esoteric, <laughs> um, as a way of explaining where the idea of free will comes from. Um, but there's already philosophers uh, in, in Roman antiquity, as well as the Hellenistic and classical periods preceding that, um, about human responsibility, right? So just because there's no discussion, for example, in Plato and Aristotle of an independent faculty of decision-making to do something or its opposite, which is how uh, many scholars of this question define the earliest notions of free will in the Roman period. You don't have such a, such a faculty of decision-making in Plato and Aristotle, but that doesn't mean that Plato and Aristotle don't talk about what we're responsible for and, and questions of human responsibility particularly with respect to um, physical and divine causality. So it's clear for Plato in various dialogues that some things are especially universal and physical laws. These are determined by the gods, okay, and by the demiurge of the creation of the universe and uh, by the regular motion of the, of the stars that we can observe in the, in the sky and other regularities in nature. But some things are up to chance. And then still other things uh, we are ourselves responsible for. For example, what life we choose when our soul is between incarnations, as described in the myths of the the Phaedrus and the Republic, right? It's up to the soul between incarnations, which life it, it picks to what kind of body it it decides to uh, descend into. Um, in the, the, the soul is not a, much of an issue for Aristotle, but Aristotle, especially in the, the Nicomachean ethics, is, furnishes the vocabulary that later philosophers are going to use to talk about individual responsibility. So, for example, the, the notion of a, a prohiresis, okay, a, a kind of behavior or character that one brings to certain situations. This is the closest thing you have to a faculty of of decision-making in Greek philosophers prior to those in the third century CE who are talking about something like a free will. You have this kind of behavioral inclination, the the prohiresis that uh, goes back to Aristotle. And then there's another phrase that you've already used a bit, namely, which is that which is up to us, uh, Uh, which you can also translate as that which is within our power. And Aristotle coins this phrase to try to describe basically that for which we are responsible, even though there's so much up to chance in this crazy sublunary world that we live in, right? And this vocabulary is taken up by Stoic philosophers who see a lot, everything, in fact, as determined, by God and what what is up to us is really how we want to go along with the flow 
of what has been determined by the gods and the, the great coursing of fire and rationality that is the universe. Um, you can you can assent to it and say, okay, I'm going to go along with things, or you can you can fight against it. You can play a beautiful uh, melody over the the tune of the symphony, or you can play a discordance uh, tone instead with blast beats and heavy metal guitars. But uh, the, the the universe is going to go the way that it's going to go, and uh, that's that is not up to you. Um, so, in short, you have you have a sophisticated vocabulary and a concern with human responsibility prior to the first century CE. But what you don't have is the notion of a part of your your soul or your psyche, a little a little compartment where decision making is made. Rather, it's um, there are it, philosophers talk about uh, inclinations and uh, times when when you are worthy of praise or blame, but not a part of you that is actually making the decisions that's separate from the rest of you, a kind of free will against which the rest of you is talking or struggling. Not just not just separate from the rest of you, but separate somehow separate from the universe itself, right? Because if yeah, it, yeah, and this is a real problem with Platonists and people like that will have with the Stoics. It's like if they really are as determinist as they say they are, how is the part of you that either assents or does not assent to fate independent of fate? Like how do they kind of bracket that off from the the web of causality that they've um, built that encompasses everything? But it seems like they kind of want you to have. A bit of you that is independent and that brings us to a very difficult philosophic concept which has appeared in the podcast so i feel like this would be a perfect time to try to nail it down compatibilism can you just tell us what a compatibilist view of fate is yeah sure something being being co-fated this is this is a, a terminology some stoic sources use to describe uh, a compatibilist scenario but compatibilism is, is interesting to me because it's so foreign to how we think <laughs> about volition and responsibility in uh, our, our culture today. But it's it's very important for Stoic and, and a lot of ancient Greek thought um, about these questions. Namely, compatibilism states that everything can be determined and nonetheless that is compatible with you having responsibility for your actions. Even if it was determined for you to do something, to have another coffee, to quit smoking, um, to go pursue a PhD, even if it was determined for you to do that, nonetheless, there are choices that you make for which you are responsible and for which you therefore merit praise or blame, despite that determination having taken place. There's no incompatibility between these two statements being true. You had to do it, and you chose to do it. And this is uh, not an everyday intuitive sense of responsibility for us, certainly not in a juridical sense no. <laughs> today. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something to get our heads around. And especially in, in late antiquity, a lot of a fine distinction, a lot of fine tuning is made to different kinds of determinist and non-deterministic models to try to find ways to uh, say that some things can be determined, but nonetheless leave some room for what is up to us. Thank you very much for that. One of the reasons that this um, is such an important philosophic concept for, for historians of esotericism is it seems to underlie a lot of the practical approach of the surviving astrological writers of antiquity. Even Vettius Valens, who is a hardcore fatalist, officially, if you look at how he actually does astrology, it seems like he's more of a compatibilist. Like, mm. the stars determine everything, but you also make choices at the same time. So compatibilism is is perhaps, and, and I'm not saying he's read Chrysippus cover to cover, I'm just saying like he seems to have to take that approach, maybe just as an ad hoc way of coming to terms with living life in a faded universe. So it's it's a very important argument and, and way of thinking in terms of getting inside the head of astrologers. The best metaphor I've read for the compatibilist worldview is in Epictetus, 
And uh, this is this is one that kind of helped me understand where at least he's coming from and articulating it. And I think it I think it maps on really well to the uh, astrological and also some some theurgical um, uh, models. Namely, uh, Epictetus talks about uh, uh, going going to sea, and maybe it's fated that he's going to die in the, in a shipwreck. Right? Um, is he? The question then is how how is he going to go about dying in the shipwreck? Is he going to uh, how how far is he going to sail out or not sail out? Um, how long is he going to stay on the ship? Is he going to be thrown from the ship? Is he going to struggle as he sinks into the sea, or is he going to sink into the sea like a like a lead stone? It is fated for him not to come back from the sea that day. But all of these things about how his death is going to happen. These are these are up to him, and particularly the question of struggling against what is going to happen or going along with it. And it's it's a vivid example. And with with the case of astrology, you could say, well, you, you have some some important general characteristics, some important general events that are that are, are keyed into the stars. But how you react to it, how you go along with it, the way it goes down. This this may be this may be up to you. Interestingly, Ptolemy in the Tetrabiblos um, he does not make that argument. Hmm. He argues that the, the reach of the stars is is limited, and it's not going. To, they they will affect some general characteristics of your lives, but not everything that will happen in it. And so there's also I think a lot of leeway within astrological writers on this question about how much. How much power to give to the stars um, in proportion to what is up to us? It seems to me, though, that none of these guys is, including Epictetus, who is a Stoic, is really being true to Chrysippus, right? What we know, so Chrysippus is a scholar, an early scholar of the Stoic school. He is uh, considered by many to be one of the greatest logicians who ever lived, but so little survives of his work that we're just trying to tease from scraps, what he actually argued about stuff like this. But he really takes causation, the web of causation, seriously. Like, it's not like there's a kind of general sketch of what's faded. And then within that details, it's like, no, every single detail of everything that happens is faded. And that's a, that's a tough one to live with. Speaking of living with stuff and you brought up Epictetus, who, who very much is, is a practical stoic who wants you to, use stoic stoic philosophy as a therapy for your own life to to be virtuous and stop being afraid of stuff and all that sort of thing there's this lazy argument that keeps showing up the argos logos um could you tell us about the lazy argument because this is a nice uh, brain teaser yeah this comes up uh in, in chrysippus I, I don't know if he's the earliest uh writer to talk about the lazy argument but but uh as as you say it's it's a, the Greek phrase for the lazy argument is the argos logos. And it goes something like this, namely, if everything's faded already, why bother? <laughs> if it's faded that you're going to be ill, why go to the doctor to be told that you were ill anyways? And this is reiterated in many examples across many thinkers in antiquity. How do any of our actions merit praise or blame? How is anything up to us? if all is faded? And this is a good question to ask of somebody who claims to be not just a, a determinist, but a compatibilist like Chrysippus. Yeah. So we've covered some early philosophic stuff. And what I'd love to get into now is of a special interest, I think, to our listeners, the kind of multi-tier approach to providence, fate, and human freedom that we see emerge in Middle Platonism and the pseudo-Plutarchian work on fate is especially important here, because I guess because it just lays it out in such a, a straightforward way. You know, so this is one way of making sense of how you can have a world where some stuff is faded. There is necessity, but there's also freedom. And metempsychosis be becomes a key way of arguing for this, which is really interesting. And, and kind of and the pre-existence of souls in, in the case of origin later on will be a, a key way of arguing for this as well. So can you tell us about this sort of multi-tiered um, determination model? 
Yeah. Um, the so so in in the the first centuries CE, but prior to Plotinus, uh, we have a, a variety of Platonists who we sometimes refer to as the middle Platonists. That is, they were writing in the middle between uh, the uh, academic uh, skeptics of the the Hellenistic Academy and uh, Plotinus, the the great founder of Neoplatonism, as some would call him. And there is a, a fairly consistent model for how providence and fate work that's described in middle Platonic writers. And one of its one of the, the features that you can that you can see among most middle Platonic writers is a distinction between providence and fate. Namely, providence is a kind of grand divine plan that's both everywhere and very abstract and very general, okay? Um, the way things are going to go in the universe and, and in a general way. And then there's fate, which also deals with generalities, but uh, is also more concrete and, and also more physical, namely the kinds of physical laws for the universe that were set down by the demiurge when he made things like uh, the world and the heavens and planets and all of that. The consistent physical laws of the universe from which you can abstract laws of uh, not just causation, but also effect that happen over and over again, these, these are set by fate, okay? And within that paradigm, many middle Platonists articulate a model which uh, is sometimes called by scholars a doctrine of conditional fate that is um, a law a law of the universe is uh, that if you jump out of a plane uh, without wearing a parachute and fall to the ground uh, you, you will almost certainly die right right um, the, the laws of physics uh, decree that it is up to you whether you jump out of the plane or not it's up to you whether you get in the plane but the as fate would have it um, it is fated that if you jump out of that plane without opening the parachute, uh, that's that's probably going to be the end of you. And a number of middle platonic writers t talk about fate in this manner. And they use uh, examples from classical mythology, for example, uh, Paris and Helen of Troy. And then uh, one of my favorites, uh, Laius, the, the father of Oedipus, namely, it was prophesied to him by an oracle of Apollo that, that if he sleeps with a woman, uh, he will be uh, killed by his child. And so he tries not to sleep with a woman, but somehow he winds up producing Oedipus anyways. And this is uh, uh, used as an example for a number of different philosophical views about faith and providence, the Laius and Oedipus episode. But one of the ones that it is used to illustrate is conditional fate. Sleep with the woman, you'll get a child. <laughs> And the child will kill you, but you don't have to sleep with her. You don't have to sleep with her. Right. That's, that's true. And the, the telling of Alcanus. And right. this also come back if, when we start to talk about the problem of, of an omniscient God who can see the future, who knows everything that's going to happen. But does that mean you're not free? Right. This, is, this becomes a big issue later on. Now, in, in your book, you, you talk about scholarship that's looked at this multi-tiered conditional fate model in uh, Pseudo-Plutarch and elsewhere, as very much drawing on a kind of like political, the emperor's court model, so that just as we don't expect the emperor to deal with every little last detail of provincial administration, he just gives the big orders. He says, you know, conquer that land over there, collect taxes over there, make peace among my subjects. That's providence. And then his lieutenants or satraps or whatever are the ones who are uh, fate, the ones who actually knock on your door and say, time to pay pay your taxes right yeah and and yeah. this is really interesting to me because uh well it's always interesting to me the way humans in trying to explain how the world works including metaphysically or in the divine realm often make it seem a lot like a earthly political situation we tend to project our uh, life here on earth onto the other world and this seems like convincingly a, an example of that right yeah totally it's an important example. There's, I think the, the most influential exposition of this model is called the model of the great king of Persia. The idea being that the, the, the king of Persia remains in his 
uh, castle. And this castle, in this castle, he is surrounded first by his courtiers and then by the guards. And the castle has layers upon layers of guards and then moats and then castles outside of the castle, palaces for the palace, right? You know, gardens that, that, that span afterwards. And then only we get to the city in his capital where his influence is, is felt uh, by and executed by advisors and governors and, and police. And then this become, this goes on and on, extends to the, the edges of his empire. There is a influence coming from the great king back in the inner reaches of his palace in Persia. And nonetheless, uh, it is not him at the edge of the empire, not by a long shot. And this, uh, this scenario is proposed in a work uh, transmitted under the, the name of Aristotle. I, I agree with, I think, the, the majority of scholars who say it's not by him, but it's called On the World, Periocosmo. Yeah. And a, a very free translation of it is produced in Latin by Apuleius in the second century under the title of De Mundo. And other writers, uh, for example, uh, Philo of Alexandria, prefer to this model of the great king or the, the great Persian king. And what's it, like like the example of the, the oracle to Oedipus's father, Laius, it can be used to illustrate different philosophical perspectives, right? Because for, for Aristotle, for example, and, and arguably in, the, in this work uh, uh, on the world, uh, the pericosmu, the pseudo-Aristotelian pericosmu, the, the example does, is, is not really focused on the servants of the king as intermediaries. The point is that there is a primal cause, a prime mover, which is enormous. And the influence of this cause, which is, which is at once great and nonetheless not, not equally present everywhere at once, extends even to places where the cause cannot be said reasonably to be happening in a direct way. The king, the great king, he's in his, in his palace. He's not at the edges of his empire, right? And nonetheless, influence is felt there. And an echo it may be faint, it may be smaller, but it's still him. How do you explain that identity? That's what the analogy is meant to illustrate. But for middle Platonists, you can make this all about the intermediaries, right? Right. The Demiurge may have withdrawn from the world after making it, but he set up the young gods, the planets, to administrate things in his absence. And by the first century CE, these are the daimones. These are the demons who are administering things, the gods. And thus, we can think of God, the divine, as having a, a providence which is general, abstract, and nonetheless very real, which is being administered by the arbiters of fate, the deities who are running our world. Right. So it actually works perfectly for a Platonist. And you also have, because you have these very strong Platonic proof texts, especially the myth of Ur, which says, I saw them there in the other world and they were basically choosing their next life and choosing their daimon and explicitly the bad shit that happened to them because of their choice is not the fault of the gods. Nevertheless, in the background is Ananke turning the spindle of the heavens. So there's that element of like, this world does have laws, but you choose what kind of life you're going to live with in the world. Those pre-birth choices can be used to explain the whole problem of theodicy in your life, like bad, why does bad stuff happen to good people? That's that's just, you've dealt with that problem. Well, that maybe the good people made a stupid choice before they were born, right? In To put it yeah. in oversimplified terms. So that seems that's, that's, like a pretty coherent working set of architecture for the universe, whereby you can explain all kinds of stuff, like why bad stuff happens to good people, but we're still free, so we can't just have a lazy argument that says why bother because why bother being virtuous why bother being a philosopher because you have to bother because these are choices you make and they will affect your next life as well also can exonerate the noetic gods because in most of our uh, middle plateness god is still a, a noose a divine noose of some form or another Th this like highest level of divinity is exonerated from any kind of detailed 
bad stuff that happens because that's not his he's not administering the details he's setting up a, a beneficial order through pronoia and allowing his lieutenants to go out and organize the details right yeah now that's really cool stuff and that background if when we then go look at um, Plotinus who has a much more kind of hardcore and sophisticated take on this these questions and a bit harder to understand maybe that's essential background for that those discussions right but um, there's another really important current in the Hellenistic period going into the Roman Empire which you talk about in your book which you just you talk about is mitigated or attenuated dualism and this is more in the Abrahamic tradition especially to do with the Enochic literature so what's this all about yeah, I mean, so Pl- Plato gives a, a number of explanations for for the existence of evils or apparent sufferings and injustices in the world, right? Uh, he, he allows space for chance. Shit happens. Okay. Then there's matter. The Demiurge made everything out of matter, and matter is chaotic stuff. You know, you can't you can't make it perfect. It's a, yeah. It's a, it, creates, I have to, it creates some interference. I have to jump in in pedantry mode and say that Plato doesn't actually talk about matter. He talks about the receptacle, and yeah, Aristotle yeah. talks about matter, and then the Platonists all agree that what Aristotle meant by matter is what Plato meant by the receptacle, and the two of course, just of course get fused. There's a it's a it's the chora, the chora, the receptacle, and and by the imperial period, this is this. This is considered to be a, a primal matter because the, the demiurge is a craftsman. He must have been working on something. Yeah. And uh, this is these are the raw materials after out of which he he was making things. And uh, the the, fir- the third explanation for which things are can seem wrong in our world, according to Plato, is that uh, our souls before they came into these bodies made some poor choices. God is not at fault for that. But there's another uh, tradition that develops. In the Hellenistic period, um, especially among Jewish writers, which which uh, other other scholars have referred to as uh, attenuated dualism or mitigated dualism, and by this perspective, uh, evil is real. It exists. It's a thing. It is a force, and uh, it may be out for you in particular. So it doesn't try to explain evil as a way as 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 part of the, the big divine plan or as something that's just incidental. No, no, it's, it's real and it is a problem. It takes the notion of evil very, very seriously. Um, and nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, the forces of light of God are ultimately in control. Um, you find this, this kind of perspective, especially in Jewish apocalyptic literature, where there are bad angels, things become demons, and these are, in, in no unclear sense, um, malevolent entities that have been on Earth for a long time and continue to plague humanity. And yet, nonetheless, in apocalyptic literature, you have a very strong sense that um, God will triumph. The God of Israel is absolutely the god and there is not an, an equal there there may be an opposing force to him but this is not an, an equal opposite force and that is that is mitigated dualism in a nutshell and so the story of the watchers the book of the so-called book of the watchers that we find preserved in this anthology first enoch that we've talked about before in the podcast arguably our earliest jewish apocalyptic text this is a key text for this whole stream of thinking, right? As far as we can reconstruct, anyway. Yeah, the Book of the Watchers, which seems to have been circulating already in the 3rd century BC as uh, fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, seem to show us, uh, describes how the angels in Genesis 6, uh, uh, verses 1 to 4, descended to earth to meet with human women, and it gives a more developed version of that story, full of details, uh, focusing on, for example, the angels attempt to seduce the, the women by offering gifts of, of knowledge, like metallurgy, 
um, alchemy, makeup, <laughs> as well as uh, the the fact that they, by mating with beings of flesh, they come to mix spirit and flesh, which are diametrically opposed substances that should not mix. And thus, in doing so, uh, create giants, the, the, the Nephilim of Genesis 6, who wreak havoc on Earth and, of course, invite uh, the, the flood to wipe them out. The ghosts of these giants are the, are the demons or spirits that float around the Earth, feeding off of human sacrifices. And the notion that there are demons or evil spirits who pretend to be gods that are feeding off of sacrifices when they're often sacrifices are offered to them by the Gentile nations is a really formative one for Hellenistic Judaism, especially concerning notions of sin. And it's key for, for Paul and uh, early Christians thinking about demonology. Right. We see it as well in later Christian thinking about demonology, like Augustine takes this line 100%. It's not that you're when you worship at the t- pagan temple, you're worshiping a, an, an illusion, like a god that's not real. You know, you're worshiping a real entity, but it's evil entity, and it's gonna yeah, it's yeah. gonna mess you up. Um, I love that on this podcast, Augustine is late. That's <laughs> <laughs> so far. Is, it's a good vibe. It's a good vibe. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, he's late antique. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So two really important streams of thought laid out in exquisite detail or exquisite uh, outline by you. One is this sort of multi-tiered vision of uh, a good cosmos, which nevertheless has sort of levels of constraint to it, right? This middle Platonist idea of a pronoia, a providence contained within which is fate, which is a bit more constrictive than providence a bit has has sort of bad stuff that can happen to you and then at the center of it all human beings being free in some senses but also constrained and this very fascinating current within abrahamic literature in which you have these kind of evil culture heroes who come and teach teach primitive humanity all kinds of arts and sciences but in a bad way who are these fallen angels, and that gives rise to a whole current of evil stuff going on in the universe. And in the second part of your book, where you talk about dualism as a theme, we see these two worldviews collide, right? Um, Because we have all manner of interesting fusions of this Abrahamic stuff with this uh, Hellenic stuff. Yeah. And Uh, you even have... You even have um, really weird stuff, like the idea of an evil pronoia, an evil providence, right? Normally, if you're going to talk about evil, you're talking about fate, it seems like, not providence, because providence is coming from God. But in some of the more extreme anti-cosmic Gnostic dualist texts, we have uh, an evil pronoia. I wonder if you can talk about that stuff. Texts like On the Creation of the World, the Trimorphic Protonoia. Uh, and the, of course, the great Apocryphon of John, a favorite of, our, of us here at the Schwepp. What's going on with providence and fate and human freedom in these texts? Great question. Uh, I think you really put your, your finger on it when you, you say that something really interesting happens when this, this kind of middle platonic, uh, multi-tiered segmentation of providence and fate where uh, demons are sort of administrative operators of what's going on in the planet um, it comes to meet the attenuated dualism of Jewish apocalyptic literature because some kind of understanding of uh, demons as present on earth but in the end subordinate to the ultimate power of the providential deity, the, the God of Israel who uh, whose son is uh, Jesus of Nazareth, is key for so many early Christian writers. So if you're an early Christian intellectual and you think that uh, demons are, are nasty entities, but the best local platonic literature you have available to you says that demons are overseers uh, running the planet. And it so happens that, say, this is the 
middle to end of the second century CE, where uh, the Roman Empire is everywhere and a little bit scary. And maybe you try to appeal to it by letting your pagan friends know that Christianity is uh, not a, a scary novelty. And it certainly is not related to these revolts that were going on uh, in, in Judea and North Africa, where the Jews tried to break away and get in big, big fights with the Romans. Um, in such an environment, it's not hard to see how some Christian writers would conclude that no, the overseers, the cosmic overseers running the show of fate and providence here on earth may be rather unpleasant beings. Uh, we might take the demonic nature of these daimones seriously. And this would explain why it is that we have these otherwise puzzling references in some of the Nag Hammadi texts um, associated with the Gnostic dossier where providence is clearly described as an evil entity. You have providence listed as one of the archons in, on the origin of the world and uh, the secret book of John from Nag Hammadi. And there's a lot of language in these texts about uh, fate as a nasty constrainer, not just of the human body, but of all negative things that happen on the planet as uh, determined by the Archon's cosmic forces operating through the power of the stars on the world and human bodies. If one takes a middle platonic view where there's an overarching providence that is good, but fate is something else and operated by demons, one simply has to color the demons negative as opposed to positive on an, in an ethical sense. And then you get this sort of perspective. And it's easy to see how some Christian writers already inclined to see daimones as negative beings because of their indebtedness to the mitigated dualism of Jewish apocalyptic literature would make such a move. And it does take an extreme form in some of these texts that we have from Nag Hammadi, which again might be one of the characteristics we want to attribute to a Gnostic tendency, let's say, rather than trying to form a, a hard school of Gnosticism as a as a movement or whatever, as a religion, but as as a, a an approach to what is, you know, like early Christian spirituality, early Christian religion. The this um radical like removing God, like the real God, the good God, from all that stuff. So even providence becomes evil because God is just transcend completely transcendent of any smackerel of worldliness. I, I, I want to be clear that even the text from Nakamani that describe an evil providence also describe a good providence okay. that is executed by the supreme deity. They, they do not deny that uh, God is providential. Rather, I, I, I wonder if the best way to put it would be that when they talk about cosmic providence, they do it sarcastically. Right. Because, you know, the Roman authorities talked about uh, the, the providencia deorum, the providence of the gods, all the time. Providencia deorum, the providence of the gods. This was a, a motto uh, to describe Roman imperial power. You see it on, on coins, on, on imperial coins. There's a, there's a huge uptick in talk about providence in imperial propaganda from Augustus on. So I wonder if when some of these Gnostic sources talk about cosmic providence in a negative way, what they mean is the stuff that people say is providence down here is bad, but the real providence is that exerted by the great invisible spirit, which is of course the love and care that, is, that exists within the, the fullness, the pleroma, the, the realm that uh, truly exists prior to all of this present creation, which is false, and to which uh, we belong to the extent that we are spiritual beings, right. creatures of the Pleroma, but this, not of this world. Right. Um, this does raise the, the issue of the idea that in these texts, there is a, a true divine providence and it's good, but it just, it's very, it's like a kind of searchlight focused on the Gnostics. It's like, it, it's only applying to 
spiritual humans. It's not applying to the natural world. Exactly. It's not applying to the, the natural order. It's just like a kind of um, laser beam that's picking out specific human beings and the rest is trash kind of thing. I love this. I think that's a, that's a great description. I, I like the spotlight. I'm going to borrow this from you. Please. And talking about this in the future. But one of the, and I'll credit you, of course I will. The, <laughs> one of the, the arguments in the book is that uh, it's, it's worthwhile talking about Gnosticism. You know, I, I disagree with my, my mentor and, and most esteemed colleague, the great Michael Allen Williams, um, who thinks that uh, we, Gnosticism is a, a dubious category that only leads us into the weeds. No, I think it's useful to talk about Gnosticism and that the, the evidence formerly associated with Gnosticism seems to offer a coherent and really distinctive view about providence, which is interesting. Namely, that when you, when you look at the Nag Hammadi and related literature pertaining to, to Gnosticism, that is, uh, myths uh, associated with the Gnosticoi, mentioned by Irenaeus of Lyon and uh, Porphyry of Tyr, what you find is that real providence, not the bad cosmic providence of the Archons, but real providence is found in two places. In the heavenly realm prior to creation, in the fullness, and in the special hum, uh, human beings, the spiritual human beings who belong to that fullness. And that's all. So care exists. There is such a thing as divine care, but it's separate from the created world, the created cosmos. And this is a interesting, an interesting and significant difference from other early Christians thinking about providence, where uh, providence is, uh, does extend to uh, other other human beings, and especially to the creation, to yeah. the created world. You know that the the creation of the world uh, was was done through providence. Not so in the Gnostic text, but definitely so in the uh, proto Orthodox Christian literature. And this Gnostic view on providence is very distinctive from what you find in Greek philosophy, right? For the Platonists and for the Stoa. Providence uh, definitely was operative in the creation of the world and of human beings. And meanwhile, for the Epicureans and for Aristotle, no, providence does not actually extend to our world at all, mm. but it doesn't extend to human beings either. There's no reason that some human beings would have a reason to say that they belong to providence and nothing else does, yeah. you know? Um, this, is a, this is a distinctive perspective from the standpoint of later Greek philosophy. And that's a reason to talk about Gnosticism yeah. from the standpoint of providence. You do have in, let's call it mainstream Orthodox Christianity, which, depending on what era we're talking about, doesn't exist yet. But as it develops, they do take as a proof text the, the thing about, um, you know, God having cognizance of every sparrow that flies around or whatever. So, of course, how much more does he take to take care of you? So this really... There's one God. You don't need subsidiary creation creators. God is in charge of everything down to the details. This like really strong providence and forget about fate almost like fate's out the window at this stage because God is just totally in charge all the way to the bottom. So the, the emperor, the, the emperor is in his palace, but he can like, he's, he's everywhere as well. He's sort of imminent. But then you have Plotinus on the other hand in against the Gnostics really arguing against this like saying, what makes you so special that you think the, the whole universal order, basically, this this good cosmos that we see around us, the best possible world, is trash, but you're really great and God really cares about you. Yeah. Yeah, basically, the, I mean, the argument I make about providence and the Gnostics in the book is that we take, that we should take Plotinus's critique seriously. This mm -hmm. is exactly what Plotinus argues in against the Gnostics and and uh, I think if we read the, the myths from Nag Hammadi closely, we see this uh, perspective um, uh, offered there as well. And in a very explicit way, these, these Gnostic texts don't just talk about things being nice in the Pleroma and things being nice for the spiritual human beings. They explicitly describe the Pleroma as full of pronoia, as full of providence, and the spiritual human being as being providence itself and inspired by providence and the creation of human beings. The, the language about providence is very strong in these myths and, and, and appears in very specific ways. Uh, but I, I'm glad you also brought up the sparrows. This is uh, 
uh, sparrows and the, and the hairs on the head, because this, this, that, that illustrates why Gnostic language about providence is also distinctive uh, in the early Christian perspective. You don't have this language about providence, fate, and what is up to us in the text that would become part of the New Testament. But what you do have in those texts, in, in the canonical gospels, in Paul, right, in the Catholic epistles, what you do have is a very strong sense that God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. And this is, this is a view of the divinity that only Stoicism from the standpoint that from the standpoint of Greek philosophy, only Stoicism kind of approximates. And so something I tried to bring out in the book as well is that in many non-Gnostic early Christian writers, uh, you have Stoic arguments and Stoic language used all the time to try to explain how a God can be omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, operative in creation, all the time, all at once, everywhere. He knows uh, when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. You know. <laughs> he knows um, when you've been cares. better good. So be good for goodness sake. <laughs> That's right. This God cares a lot. Yeah. Boy, does he care. And there are going to be consequences if you don't watch out. So this is, uh, this, this is very important for a lot of early Christian writers. And it's an example of how not just Platonism but Stoic models of thinking about the universe were really crucial for exploring, for, for the development of earliest Christian philosophy. Mm. But they, they also inherit the problems, the very serious problems with the Stoic view of an imminent God who is fate, who is pronoia all in one go, um, for things like human freedom and accountability. And they, so they, they do have to nuance things one way or another. That maybe brings us very nicely to our third main topic. 